Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, September 12th, 2022. On the show today, news, surveys, and listener questions. Then in our main segment, today's the anniversary of Captain EO's 1986 opening at Epcot, and Jim talks about that and how it was part of then-new CEO Michael Eisner's plan to bring more celebrities to Disney theme parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's just started investing in stocks. First chicken, then beef, now vegetable. Soon, he'll be a bullionaire. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are headed into that season of the year, Len. My problem is I'll make soup. And for some odd reason, I always either add that ingredient too many mm -hmm. or let it cook for too long. And it, and it becomes not just stew, but something you could stand on. It becomes building <laughs> material. Like an early form of Roman concrete. I'm with you. What am I doing wrong? How does it go from soup to solid? <laughs> does it go from soup to like there's a there's a uh, there's a, a phase change that physician the people in physics need to look at here, right? Absolutely. <laughs> if anybody out there has a tip, because adding water doesn't help. It's like you're now pouring water on the concrete, and it's like, yeah. sorry, pal, I'm not absorbing this anymore. At, at some point, it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. You wanted soup, you got spackle. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, Julia Child, we're our only hope. All right. <laughs> there we go. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Oboman99, Charles Hen, and JJ Miranda, and longtime subscribers, Ken Hardy, Stephen Selkoff, and Collins Westcott. All subscribers since 2015. So, wow. And Jim, these are the folks constantly working on new ideas for pizza over at Epcot's Via Napoli restaurant. As you know, Jim, Via Napoli has round pizzas in 25 centimeter and 50 centimeter forms. Also a half meter Meze Metro. To this gym, these fine folks are experimenting not only with the one meter pizza, which serves 24 to 40 people, but also the RA pizza, which is 100 square meters and would feed everyone in Epcot, at least those who aren't smothered in dough as it proofs. So there's still some things to work out, but true story nonetheless. I enjoy a pie that not only feeds 10, but seats 20. <laughs> So I had to look up, I was trying to look up metric measurements and the hectare is, you know, is uh, uh, a 10,000 square meters, but I'm like, well, what's that based on? And that's where I got that mm -hmm. other unit of measurements. So learn something new every day here. Interesting you say that because I was just doing some research on Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris mm -hmm. and the new lake they're building just beyond the Avengers campus. And it was defeated by the Hectacre. It was like, okay. Is this furloughs per fortnight? What is this? Uh, what there we go. What sort right. of unit of measure is this? <laughs> it's going to be big, Lan. It's a big lake. <laughs> so. Well, your French accent is just on point today, Jim. There we go. All right, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, a couple of quick things. Jim and I are doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World starting Friday, December 2nd. You can uh, also join us for a live podcast recording on December 2nd. Tickets are available at touringplans.com slash 2022-disney-dish-tp. Also... Disney's released Galactic Star Cruiser dates for 2023. Jim and I are on the March 30th voyage. If you'd like to uh, to join us, uh, visit storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish to get a quote. All right, Jim, uh, light week for news out in front of D23, which you're going to this week, in fact, right? That's why we're recording early today, right? 
This is the, the case, Len. You know, the Nancy is prepping the box with air holes even as we speak. <laughs> All right. This week, Jim, uh, the Donald's Dino Bash meet and greet is back in Dinoland USA to Animal Kingdom. I like this meet and greet for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which is the premise, which is that Donald has recently learned that birds are descendant from dinosaurs. And that's historically accurate, so it makes sense to put this in Dinoland and for Donald to be wearing a vaguely dinosaur scaly looking outfit. So well done uh, there. Have you heard anything, Jim, by the way, of any other character meet and greets coming back? I'm fairly certain you've been paying attention to what's been going on on the West Coast in regard to, I think we got our very first Oogie Boogie Bash outed. Uh, And and in fact, isn't Guy going to be covering that for the um, touring plans? Guy's going, yeah, Guy, uh, our own Guy Selga is uh, is going for us. He's a huge fan of Halloween events, uh, especially Mm -hmm. in Disneyland. So yeah, looking forward to that. They were showing video of the, you know, now every year the Fab Five get new outfits. But again, the whole notion is you get the new outfit. So, hey, look, there happens to be a complimentary plush. Or, you know, the, the... Uh, That sort of thing. This all goes on in California, but evidently that there seems to be some sort of steel barrier erected at the Mississippi. You know, very rarely does this stuff come come east, and it's just kind of puzzling to me, especially given, you know, what a huge thing for the resort the Mickey's Not-So-Scary is. And that's the thing. There are vastly more uh, holiday parties in Walt Disney World than Disneyland. You think there'd be a commensurate amount of merch to go with it. Uh, You... I mean, maybe it's still supply chain stuff. I don't know. Eh, could be, could be. Yeah, but looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing it. The other thing I'm interested in seeing is whether crowds in Disneyland fall off on party days the way they do in Walt Disney World. So our own Christina, uh, who you know from the show, has uh, been looking at wait times uh, in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom on days when the Magic Kingdom closes early for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. And the, if you compare the wait times at... Uh, on party days at the Magic Kingdom, they are historically some of the lowest weights of the past 365 days. Um, and so I'm interested to see what happens in Disneyland as well, whether we get there. The other thing that's compounding Disneyland's uh, crowd levels is, have you seen the temperatures in Disneyland lately? Um, it was over 100 was, degrees uh, on yeah. Sunday in Disneyland. And, and Californians, I mean, they're a hardy folk, right? They had to be hardy to get out there. Uh, mm-hmm. To make it across the, uh, the the terrain to make it to California, but man, they do not go to theme parks when it's above like ninety degrees, Jim. <laughs> no, they don't linger in Death Valley, and they certainly don't. You know, you know, again, one hundred and four, one hundred and seven degrees. So, yeah. interesting Insane. thing, I was just, just told that as we arrive, it's going to get down into the eighties. So it's you know, again, it's it's Indian summer now. You know, yeah. bring a sweater. Well, I remember one year I went from Palm Springs, where it actually does get above 120 degrees in the summer, and I went to Anaheim, and it was like 84, and I brought a sweater out for the first couple hours, just because like, ooh, honest to God, got out of the car, I was like, I feel a little chill. I might, I might need a sweater. I totally, totally understand it. All right. Wow. All right, let's move on to surveys, because we got some really interesting things uh, this mm-hmm. week. First one up is from Dustin, who got a survey while planning a July 2023 trip, and here's mm-hmm. the question that prompted Dustin to email us. Uh, the question is, Is uh, do you strongly agree, somewhat agree, neither agree nor disagree, somewhat disagree or strongly disagree with the following statement? My planning experience is uniquely Disney. <laughs> Dustin's comment was, I wasn't sure how to answer this. Uh, I agree, but I'm not sure it means what they think it means. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you, you got to use two apps, all right, and stand on one foot. 
<laughs> you make it so though if for for folks who were listening who haven't yet heard of Jim's two app reference, that actually is is instructions that Disney put out for guests who are attending is it D23 and want to get merchandise. You have to make yes. a reservation in one app and then use another app to actually select the merchandise? Is that how it works? And it's like, you understand you're the Walt Disney Company. Your whole mission is to pick people up by the ankles and shake them till their money comes out. And the notion you've created a two-step process, which means people can rethink the decision. Well, you know, maybe I don't need the $105 sweatshirt. Yeah. You know, maybe I should rethink this decision. It's like, no, 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 no. You're This is shopping at Disney. You're supposed to be able to do it quickly. Right. I mean, think about how easy it's, uh, Apple has made it to pay for things. I don't know. Absolutely. This is not that, yeah. The thing I'm interested in is, I know you've got to use two apps. My question is, is how many times do you have to log in in Ugh. each app? Because I know when I use my Disney experience and I go to make a park reservation, I have to log in twice. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so is using the two apps, does it require four logins? <laughs> I will let you know when I get back from the Anaheim Convention Center. At, at, at one point, is there a feats of strength test that you must pass? <laughs> In order to acquire the really good merchandise. I think that's coming up soon. All right. Next uh, survey question came from Sean, Kathy, Thomas, Brandon, Steve, and several others. It's a new question on Disney surveys uh, that goes like this. Do you or anyone in your household work in any of the following industries? Select all that apply. Theme parks or amusement parks. Bloggers or vloggers. Travel agency or tourism. Social media. Marketing or marketing research. Retail or healthcare. And if you answer yes to uh, theme park, blogger, travel agency, social media, or marketing... The survey ends. I'm shocked, Lynn. Shocked. <laughs> part of me, part of me is like, I, I get this because Disney probably hears enough from those people. But my second thing is, my, my second question, and this is the is the inverse of that. And it's like, travel agents talk directly to people who want to buy Disney things. Why do you not want their opinion? <sighs> uh, you, know? you know? Yeah, you know, you know exactly. <laughs> Look, just buy it. Don't ask questions. Just buy it. All right. And, and again, use the two apps to do this. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, I got a universal survey from our own Christina, who visited Universal Orlando this week. It starts with a question I don't think I've seen on any Disney or Universal survey before. And I think this is super interesting. How did your visit on Sunday compare to your expectations? It was much better. It was somewhat better. It was about the same as I expected. It was somewhat worse than I expected, or it was much worse. And Jim, the reason why I like this question is, is that's basically the high-level answer for everything. Like, all in all, mm -hmm. what did you think? And I don't, I don't think I've seen this anywhere else. But ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? Like, overall, mm -hmm. what do you think, right? Yeah, I mean, just just uh, now, uh, kind of intriguing about the timing on this. Yeah, it was immediately after she got the she got home. But did you see? I mean, I to be fair, we are constantly hammering on Disney about you know the cost of going to the parks and Lightning Lane and the like. But just yeah. today, the New York Post did a story about a family of four from the UK that went to the park for one day mm -hmm. and then they proceeded to list what it had cost them and it was over $1,100. Yes. And supposedly the internet lost its mind. It's like, oh my God, you could go to Spain for that amount of money. And, you know, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And it's like, wow. So... It, it isn't just Disney that, that's getting hit with this now. Though, yeah. anecdotally, it just seems to me that it is 
easier to go to the Universal uh, Orlando Resort and and cheaper. But I'm yeah. now wondering in the back of the story. It's like, do I need to update my references here? It's a good question. I think the the thing that you see with um, with Universal is they have substantially better um, annual pass benefits. Also, the express pass that comes with staying at a mm-hmm. Universal hotel is vastly different than Disney's additional charges for Genie Plus and individual anyway. Got it. Here's a uh, here's a second question that uh, that Chrissy got from her Universal survey of this past week. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, and I want to get your opinion on on, on a couple of things here. Uh, so the the question is this: Would you say that any of the following things were specific reasons for your visit to Universal Studios Florida on this date? Select all that apply. And one category is to experience a specific land or area of the park. And the reason, Jim, why I think this is interesting is there are two options: Harry mm-hmm. Potter and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> the wow. next the next one is and this is for specific rides did you mm-hmm. did you go to experience a specific ride or attraction and the options are the born stuntacular mm-hmm. and everything else <laughs> why so i get the harry potter thing i sort mm-hmm. of understand the harry potter question why though would you design a survey and ask did you go to uh experience a specific ride and then list two, one of which is the Born Spectacular or Spectacular, and the other the other option is literally everything else in the park. This is one of those taking the temperature of the room mm. questions. In 2010, when the original Hogsmeade opened, you know, mm-hmm. the first Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and we, you know, we were still in the middle of the film cycle and that sort of thing, and people were ridiculously excited about Potter. Where is where we are now in 2022? And, you know, The Secrets of Dumbledore came out and underperformed at the box office. And J.K. Rowling is kind of under a cloud because of her attitude towards transgender folks. And I look at this like especially the the born stuntacular or other rider attraction. It's like this to me feels like. You know, this is something that marketing put out there to the effect of, do we need to finesse what we're putting in the front window here? Because, you know, the board Stuntacular opened last year, didn't it? Yeah, and it's, it, it's great. I really like the show a lot. I think there are a couple of effects there where I legitimately said, wow, the first mm-hmm. time I saw them. But at the same time, Lynn, this is six months, nine months. And, and let's face it, a, a new attraction, especially something like the board Stuntacular, does have a shelf life. And yeah. what are we advertising? What are we putting out on the front of our brochures that we are then dropping on iDrive and in the lobby of all those hotels? Yeah, so this is this is what I think. I think maybe the different people getting the survey might get a mm-hmm. different attraction there. There we go. Mm-hmm. To see which thing bubbles to the top. That's the only thing I could come up with for for why that's there. It certainly makes sense. But that means they'd have to get many, 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 many hundreds of responses mm-hmm. to this survey to get a statistically valid sample on that. No doubt. But at the same time, remember, sometimes you write a survey looking for an answer. Yeah. And in this case, somebody in marketing's like, yeah, maybe let's take Potter off the front for a while. And then likewise, Bourne had a nice run, but let's get something else in the front window here. And sure. we're still a while out from that Minions attraction right. that you know, replaced Shrek. So it'd be interesting to see what they put on the front of the brochure. All right. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. What uh, what happens next? All right, Jim, uh, here's a question, another question from the survey. And Jim, mm-hmm. let me preface by saying they know, Jim, mm-hmm. they know. <laughs> here's the question. Based on your visit on you know, Saturday, please rate Universal Studios Florida on each of the following attributes. And this attribute mm-hmm. is 
seamless, hassle-free nature of my visit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. We're back to our folks in marketing, aren't we? In fact, I saw what you said earlier today on Twitter. This was that question. Yeah. I was like, Universal's survey team is just killing it. I would not be surprised, Jim, if the results of this question become the centerpiece of a marketing campaign. Oh, absolutely, Len. The very notion of you spend the first 15, 20 seconds of an ad, some poor person who's trying <laughs> two apps. to- <laughs> Two apps. Yeah, two, two apps. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> God, it writes itself. <laughs> That's really not an ad that the folks up the street would want to have out there, but hey, play to your strengths. That's why I said, Jim, they know, they mm-hmm. know- all right, last question from this uh, from this survey. Based on your visit on Saturday, please rate Universal Studios Florida on each of the following attributes. Mm-hmm. And this one is value for what I paid to visit. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, you combine those two things. And remember, we talked last week about a uh, about somebody who'd emailed me uh, asking to check their spouse's math on how much it was going to cost them to use Genie Plus in individual lightning lane for uh, an eight day trip over. Uh, this coming Christmas. And I would, and so she said, you know, my husband thinks it's going to cost us $1,800 to use these things. Mm-hmm. Can you please tell me where his calculations are wrong? And I'm like, he's off by $4. Jim, this, the, this question seems to indicate that Universal suspects that might not be the best experience. Yep. We'll yep. see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Yeah. That, that's going to be interesting heading into the fall. All right. Uh, time for a couple of quick listener questions. Here's one from Stacy. He says, uh, I've not heard any mention of a reopening date for Monsieur Paul's, the restaurant in Francis Pavilion in Epcot. This restaurant was one of my family's favorites, and it was a gem. I was wondering if you've heard any information on a reopening for this place. Thanks for anything you can share. All right. So, Jim, I've not heard anything about this. And and I get the same sort of question for Takumite over at Japan. Both of these are high-end restaurants inside of Epcot. I really liked Takumite a lot. I think there are a couple of things going on here. Um, Number one, to get the high-end kitchen staff that you need, especially coming from Japan and coming from France, which is what you need to make those authentic. That is very difficult still. The other thing, I went back and pulled the the unofficial guide and touring plans reader ratings for these restaurants um, over the last few years. Takumite had a 79% thumbs up rating, Monsieur Paul almost the same, 81%. But in context though, those are both very low. So the average rating for all sit-down restaurants in Walt Disney World is around like 87.8%. Call it 88 just to make the math simple. And we get hundreds of thousands of restaurant ratings. So we can calculate sort of standard deviations and do some sophisticated math on those things. But here's what we think, right? So an average restaurant is basically anything that's close to 88%, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. If you're below average, you're between 84 and 87%. If you're above average, between like 88.5 and 91%. If you're much above average, it's between 91 and 94%. And then an exceptional restaurant is above 94%. Conversely, anything below 84% is much below average. And really, when you get down to 79%, we actually have a category for that called, and I'm not joking, do not visit. Basically, you can just throw a dart at a dartboard and have a better chance of paying for something you would like more. So Takumite is right at that. But here's the thing, Jim. I've enjoyed every meal. I've had there. So I think it's I think it's a combination of two things. One, it's an unfamiliar cuisine to a lot of people. Two, it's very expensive. That's a tough one to punch right there. Yeah. Just the notion that you have to deliver 
exemplary service in that setting just because of the, the both the sticker shock and the notion of well, what am, what exactly am I eating here? Yeah, and these are both fairly expensive upscale restaurants mm-hmm. in a theme park. Like if if Tukumite was in a major metropolitan city in the United States, mm-hmm. it would it would probably do well, right? Monsieur Paul, same thing. You'd have to have a niche um, for it. But I think in a theme park where you're pulling from a wide swath of the American population, I just think that that type of cuisine might not play to, it probably plays to enough people. My concern is that there are people wandering and they're not knowing what they're getting entirely. I, and I, I think, and I think the unexpected yeah. part of it there is a thing. Because, you know, you could go in there and be like, I'm not sure I'm going to like any of this food and why is the bill $300? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's where yeah. we're working. Again, lovely food. I hope they both come back. I really like to commute quite a bit, but I think that's the thing that they're running into there. And I think that's part of the problem. It's like are, Disney's looking at this and saying, am I going to put all kinds of effort into reopening these restaurants when virtually everything else we do in Epcot is rated higher. Tough balance there. The money that you would spend reopening Monsieur Poe to Kumite, yeah. you know, you know, put a bar. Get, <laughs> put a bar well, no, that's exactly. Would you get God. that that much more of a, a, a return on your investment? Another oh, show kitchen or another open, you know, thing around World Showcase Lagoon? I know, I know, I know. It's 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 tough because I understand both sides of that uh, of that that equation. Mm. All right. Uh, one last email before we get on to our main segment. Uh, this is actually from uh, a user named EHH over from Disboards.com. Jimmy, remember last week uh, you and I shared a photo of what could possibly be the worst hotel room view we've ever seen over at uh, Disney's Boulder Ridge uh, Villas. It's room 3562. This was the one where the only thing that was, it was a it was a view at night of used laundry carts. The only thing that was missing, Jim, was a uh, a raccoon jumping out of a flaming dumpster. So uh, EHH's comment uh, was, mm-hmm. uh, Len, this is the coveted backstage view room category. <laughs> and I'm saying, E-man, don't give them any ideas. Just don't give them any ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, do you realize how much people pay for backstage tours? <laughs> Let me reiterate to Disney that this was a joke. It was meant sarcastically. And the guests do not actually desire a backstage view group category. Please don't implement one. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We come back. Jim tells us about how when Captain EO opened at Epcot on September 12, 1986, it was the start of Disney's then CEO Michael Eisner's attempt to bring more Hollywood stars to Disney's theme parks. We'll be right back. Okay, if you listen to this podcast, then you already know I do an awful lot of research in order to prep the stories that I share here which means that I have subscriptions to all sorts of newspapers and magazines from which I then cull the info that I need to write these stories. The downside is I often forget to cancel these subscriptions after I've gotten the info that I need, which made for a really rude awakening every month when that automatic subscription fee then came in. And I'd once again think, and no, I really got to get around to canceling that subscription. That's why I love Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. Rocket Money is this great app that I use that helps me keep track of all of my expenses. And because of it, I'm no longer wasting money on subscriptions I'm no longer using. And these savings can be considerable, folks. Did you know that while most Americans think that they're only spending around $80 a month on subscriptions, that total is actually a lot closer to $200 plus. And the beauty part of Rocket Money is that this app shows all of your subscriptions in one place, and then cancels what you don't want for you. 
Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know that you were paying for, or worse, point out subscriptions that you're being double-charged for. Nancy and I had a situation like that just recently with the Orlando Sentinel. And to cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel, and Rocket Money then takes care of the rest. So get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. Seriously, it can save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. All right, Jim, I am super excited about this because, number one, it's the anniversary of Captain EO, which I liked at the time, uh, back in 86, you know, when it opened. I remember sitting fondly in air conditioning and watching what had to be one of the strangest music videos I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) But remember, this was when MTV actually showed videos, so we were kind of used to this long-form music video concept thing, right? Great that you use the term long form, because remember, Captain EO was 17 minutes long. Mm -hmm. Also, kind of controversial in that Disney would only admit to, yeah, we spent a million dollars a minute on that thing. For its time... It was very expensive, yeah. Hugely expensive. But but the the more interesting point is that's the price they'd admit to. (laughs) I've heard from folks who actually worked on this thing that it could have gone as high as $30 million. And and in fact, at one point I was shown an invoice that showed that the actual cost was $23.7 million dollars. And then evidently the cost of actually retooling the theater at Epcot that used to show Magic Journeys, likewise turning the space stage, Space at Tomorrowland, into an indoor theater that could show a 4D movie. That's supposedly where the number finally made it to 30. But Michael Eisner, you know, his mandate was got to make these places more attractive to young people, got to make them more exciting. And again, this is the guy who came over from Paramount. And so it's like, okay, I, I know how to do this. You need stars. You stars, need star power. Yeah, star power. And but prior to this, Disney had buried the needle in the other direction. If you went to Disneyland from '54 to '84 mm-hmm. and went to any of the attractions on property, you had amazing AA figures of auctioneer from Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. Honest Abe from Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, or even Henry from Country Bear. And if we we go to Florida, we got Dreamfinder and Figment and. And of course, you know, the singing bus from the Haunted Mansion. And all of those cases, those aren't celebrities yeah. voicing those. Those are professional voice actors like Paul Fries, Royal Dano, Thurl Ravencroft, Peter Renaday, even Chuck McCann and Billy Barty. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eisner, he was looking down the barrel about how do we get people back into the parks, particularly young people. But he doubles back to Walt's old playbook. This was said about Disney in the 50s and the 60s. Disney gets you, get you on the way up, or they get you on the way down. <laughs> so and, kids and parents. Well, no, no actually celebrities, performers. Uh-huh, okay, you know, okay. Because right. the very first film projects of size that we saw with Julie Andrews or Haley Mills or Dean Jones or the like, they were at Disney. Walt identified a rising talent and went after it. I mean, not for nothing, Jim. Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. There we go. All right. All right. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. But conversely, if, if we look at, say, Fred McMurray, 
in 43, Len, this guy was the highest paid guy in Hollywood. He was the fourth highest paid man in all of the United States. Wow. Okay. And this was because he was considered a serious actor at this point. I mean, think about it. In 44, he makes Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder. I mean, one of the classic film noirs. We jump ahead to 54, and he's in the Kane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart. I mean, this is a guy who had a serious career. But then television comes along and kind of knocks him off his stride and and Fred's kind of at a loss at the moment and this is at the point where Walt Disney literally raises his hand and goes hey Fred you want to come make movies for us this is when we get him as the kind of dim-witted dad in the shaggy dog and the the eccentric you know, lead character and the absent-minded professor and that sort of thing but interestingly, this puts him back on top on the box office, which is when Billy Wilder, again, the guy he did Double Indemnity with, is like, hey, Fred, I'm thinking of making a movie with Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon called The Apartment. You want to come play the villain? Oh, funny. And and so Fred's like, absolutely. And and that, in turn, becomes the best picture Oscar winner for 1960. So Really? Yeah, Walt Disney helped revitalize Fred McMurray's career. and But but the beauty part of it is, is he got Fred for less than he was normally paid for, mm, you know, nice. because he was kind of perceived as damaged goods at the moment. So Eisner hears this story, and I was like, oh, okay. So who else is having career problems right about now? <laughs> Let me see. Uh, who's, who's on the love boat this week? Let me see. <laughs> do we know? And, it, and it, it, it turns out Bette Midler in 79 had gotten an Academy Award nomination for her first leading role in The Rose. But her mm-hmm. follow-up project in 1982, Jinx, was such a troubled production and did so badly at the box office Bet couldn't get arrested in Hollywood for the next three years. This is before she came, before her uh, comeback vehicle of Rochelle Rochelle. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> oh, Mr. Seinfeld, we miss you so. <laughs> also, uh, taking into consideration Richard Dreyfuss, who, who won yeah. Best Oscar for his performance in The Goodbye Girl in 77. I mean, he was in Jaws before that. I mean, he was, he oh, was on the street. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It, as hot as he was from Jaws to Close Encounters to the goodbye girl yeah. oh forgot about that yeah five-year-long cold streak at the box office yeah. and so and some whispers of a substance abuse problem so just like bet richard was in movie jail and eister didn't care about any of that you know all he wanted was to sign very talented performers for far less than they normally got and he paired them with nick nolte and yep. that then became the first disney produced film of the eisner era down and out in beverly hills with uh, a pause Paul <laughs> a role movie. nick nolte is still living to this day Jim. <laughs> Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Somebody, somebody got to tell him. Yeah, cameras off. You yeah, stop eating no the one, dog. No food. one, no one officially yelled "cut" on that last that, scene. He's a method go. actor. I get it. Go ahead. But. Going forward here, it actually became a joke in the industry that Disney seemed to be lurking outside of the exit of the Betty Ford Center. And it's as soon as people finish their treatment, it's like, hey, you need work. Come to the mouse house. And everyone stopped laughing when in January of 87, they made Good Morning Vietnam with uh, Robin Williams. And he got a nomination for Best Actor that year. I mean, give give Disney credit, and Michael Esther specifically here, for for, uh, identifying the fact that the public likes a good redemption story that they do that they do all right 
But at the same time, Michael also at a time when Disney really had no money, because remember, you know, when he came through the door, the company had just finished fighting off Saul Steinberg and right. Ivan Bosky, yeah. you know, and so it's like we need to make affordable movies for a while. Yeah, they're doing Moneyball. I mean, it's the Moneyball strategy, right? Yeah, and at the same time, it certainly doesn't hurt when you, you pivot to the parks and it's like, well, how can we get people to come back to the parks? And it's like, Michael Jackson seems obsessed with the Disney theme park, so why don't we reach out to him and see if he'd be interested in doing a show with us for the parks? And Michael was hotter than hot in mm -hmm. 85, 86, 87. Sure. And the fact that he would literally took time off to shoot Captain EO, which again... Not the most organized shoot because Francis Ford Coppola, who never shot a 3D movie before. So, yes, you, you were talking about September 12th, 1986, 86. when Captain EO first opens at Epcot. And they did a lovely job. Yeah. But if you compare it to what went on in California just six days later, Len, September 18th, the full-size blowout that they did at Disneyland, again, Suddenly, we're back to the whole Oogie Boogie Bash, Halloween, how they do everything better in California. Right, right. They had a 60-hour-long party land. For Captain EO? For Captain EO. Be fair to Florida, Jim. Be fair to Florida. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just saying. The downside of, of keeping the park open from 10 a.m. on September 18th to 10 p.m. on the 21st of that same month is, you know, I, I remember talking with managers who were with Park at the time, and they were like, oh, if you've ever seen The Walking Dead, this, <laughs> this was really, you know, just sort of, you know, I mean, never mind that the, the line went from, from Tomorrowland all the way down to Town Square down Main Street. Wow. People would stand in it for six or seven hours at a time to see, again, the 17-minute long thing. So Michael looks at that and goes, that's what we need to do. Celebrities get people into these parks. And so the heyday of this lend really is 1989. Oh, hold on, hold on one sec. So hold on. So we, we've missed a, a key part of your notes here, uh, Jim, and that is the uh, performance of Angelica Huston oh, yes. in 3D as the supreme leader in this. And what I have to say, Jim, is... It was a chewing the scenery moment for me <laughs> in this because I looked at this and I'm like, who the, who the hell is that? <laughs> like, yeah, what, yeah, what, what is going on here? <laughs> she was not the first choice for the Supreme Leader. In fact, Queen Elizabeth. Well, <laughs> no, but but you know, oddly enough, a favorite for Disney fans, particularly those of us who like the the Robert Altman version of Popeye, it was Shirley Duvall. She was going to put her own interesting spin on the Supreme Leader. But it turns out when they brought her in to do the makeup for the character, she turned to Rick Baker and is like, oh, I, I guess at this point I should mention that I, I have terrible claustrophobia. Mm. And so the, the notion that he was going to seal her in with dozens of pieces of, of plastic of vinyl. Yeah, to, yeah and, basically oh. layered into up, up against a wall, right? She was like enclosed in something. Okay, yeah. yeah, well, remember, she was in kind of a spider web thing. Yeah, they they yeah, lowered yeah, her yeah. in. Yeah. You find me beautiful. You know, that like. She had issues. Okay. All right. she, she had issues. But again, she, she bails out of the project. And Dizzy's desperate to get somebody to come in the door to play the role. And Angelica Houston had just won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. 
actress in Prizzy's honor. Mm. And so it's like, are you available? Can you come in? How, how do you feel about makeup? And it's like, sure. <laughs> if the check's large enough, you can cover me with latex and you can dangle me from the ceiling. <laughs> you know, you know, the pitch meeting was like, okay, here we go. And this is like, they're, they're probably at Spago mm-hmm. in California, but the pitch goes like this. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson and latex. <laughs> She's like, I'm in. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> All right. The 80s were an interesting time. Different man. time, man. Different time. All right. But anyway, speaking of the 80s, 1989 was pretty much the apex when it came to Disney's inserting celebrities into attraction. I mean, think about it. If we went over to the Disney MGM and we did the backstage tour, we had Goldie Hawn and Rick Moranis on video first introducing the tour, mm-hmm. go to the special effects place, we get Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert reviewing the, the performance of the kids who ride on the giant bee. We make our way into the soundstage area, and we actually have the kids from the Cosby show, you know, explaining to us, well, what's going on down on the stage? Next, we literally see the, the very first thing shot at Disney and Jim. We see the, the lottery, the, the film featuring Bette Midler, which was directed by Gary Marshall. Then we get, you know, Mel Gibson and Pee Wee Herman talking about the importance of sound. And then to give you just some idea of what the Disney company was like in the the late 1980s, the very last celebrity you saw before you completed your backstage tour was Michael Eisner with Mickey Mouse. That's such a window into who was running the company at the time. The biggest star of all, me! He did. He did have a. He did have a return as a celebrity there for a while, especially on the. Uh, I remember on the VHS videos. It was always like, "I'm Michael Eisner. You're about to watch I, this movie." Yeah, exactly. There we go. But if we go over to the, the magic of Disney Animation, we got Walter Cronkite and, and Rob Williams hosting Back to Neverland, Monster Sound Show. I mean, pre-show by David Letterman. Yeah. Chevy Chase. And, and yeah, the, the show itself with Chevy Chase and Martin Short. In fact, Martin Short did double duty that year because six months later, the Wonders of Life and Health Pavilion opens at Epcot, and he stars in The Making of Me. It's Glenn Gordon Karen, the gentleman behind the hugely popular at that time, Moonlighting on ABC. Mm. It's him trying to thread the needle, talking about... Where do babies come from, but in a theme park in 1980s in Epcot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck. I mean, if, any, if anyone can do it, it's Martin Short. There we go. And again, if we double back over to uh, Body Wars, we've got Tim Matheson, Otter from Animal House. He's playing Captain Braddock. We've got Elizabeth Chu from Disney's Adventures in Babysitting. Is okay, Dr. I will, I will, I will t- accept no blasphemy on Elizabeth Chu's name because I love that movie. That movie is very funny. Didn't they just remake that for Disney Plus? I believe so. There have been a couple of uh, relaunches of it. I'm frankly surprised it wasn't. It didn't get made into a TV series. Before now. It was a different time in the company. That success, there should have been a series. Anyway, Body Wars uh, director, post-show, pre-show? That's Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock. Eisner actually sought him for that gig because it's like, hey, you directed Search for Spock and Voyage Home, and you're very good at that science fiction-y thing, so come here, help do the pre-show. And of course, the sort of the pinnacle of the whole celebrity thing is Cranium Command, where we had Charles Grodin as the right brain, John mm-hmm. Levitz as the left brain, mm-hmm. George Went as the stomach, my personal favorite, Bobcat <laughs> Goldthwait, is the adrenal gland. I think that's kind of typecasting, though, don't you? <laughs> Looking at this going, yeah, 
right, but who else? Like, like, was there a second choice, or there uh, were they were just like, okay, Bobcat, how big does this check need to be? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, he he was pretty good. And and then of course you've got Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon yeah. as Hans and Franz from Saturday Night Live as the two chambers of your heart. Here, okay, so here's my question: They're clearly playing their Saturday Night Live characters mm-hmm. in that, right? Saturday Night Live is an NBC property. How does NBC let them do it for Disney? Key phrase to remember here is Disney doesn't acquire ABC till uh, Cap Cities till 1995. So, you know, it's one of those things where let's go have a a conversation with with Michael, the the longtime producer of Saturday Night Live. And how much do we have to actually pay you to get the rights to this character? And, And, you know, if we don't actually use the name Hans and Franz, can we do this? And it was a different time. This is where uh, Michael Eisner goes to uh, Lorne Michaels and says, Lorne, Bubala, baby. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to say what probably greased the skids here is by that point, there had been a couple of Saturday Night Live related movies. And I'm pretty sure one or two of them had been greenlit at Paramount. All right, so so the favor, favors were, were either traded or owed. Okay, fair enough. There we go. Now, right. it's interesting that we're now talking about Cranium Command because this is kind of where the wheels start to go off the whole celebrity thing. Because uh, you can actually go, and there are images of the first marquee, the first entrance to Cranium Command at the Wonders of Life Pavilion. And it leans into the notion of, okay, look, you know, here's the thing of the human body. And if we look up at the head, there's there's Charles Grodin, there's John Lovett. So if we look down toward the stomach, there's George Wendt. And there where the heart would be is Hans and Franz. And mm-hmm. if you remember how The Wonders of Life was originally set up, I mean, you had the Coach's Corner, Fitness Fairground, uh, the Sensory Funhouse. I mean, Goofy about health. Got to give a shout out to our friend Jim Scholl. There we go. And, yeah. um, but... The problem was that it was so many little elements, interactive things, to do a marquee like that, that made it look like, oh, this is one of those exhibits I'm supposed to look at and walk by. People yeah. weren't actually going into the theater to see the yeah. show. Didn't know it was a, th- a, bi- a, big, a, a big headliner attraction. Yeah. That's it, exactly. So they a year, year and a half later, they shut down the attraction for like a week, 10 days. And when it comes back up... There is a brand new, this is a theater marquee that has Buzzy and general knowledge out front to the effect of, look, these are the characters you will see if you walk through these doors and watch this movie. But again, it was just the whole notion of, well, okay, you know, we thought putting celebrity pictures of celebrities in the outside would get, make people go in and it didn't. And also about this same time, Paul Rubens uh, Has has, has some issues had some issues at at, at an adult theater in Sarasota, Florida. And the interesting thing is that Disney, and you have to remember at this time, the backstage tour at Disney MGM Len is hosted. You know, a cast member leads you as a group through the thing. And they literally turn to the cast members in the days after Paul's arrest. And it's like, let us know what the guests say, you know, and if they start talking about this, we're probably going to have to pull the segment with uh, Mel Gibson and, and Pee Wee Herman. And the interesting thing is that, you know, at the end of the day, there's like nobody's saying anything. 
Yeah. At that point of the tour, they're like, okay, I watch the video segment and then I go to the next building. They did the exact same thing in August of 2006 when, when Mel Gibson got pulled over on the Pacific Coast Highway for, for drinking and driving and saying some unfortunate things. Same thing. They, 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 they had cast members listen and it's like, nah, they, they don't care. But the backstage tour went from being a hosted attraction to, you know, just guests being pulsed on their own in March of 2009. And then the tour itself uh, shut down in September of 2014 to sort of clear the path for, you know, what we got with Toy Story Land and, and Galaxy's Edge. But during this same period, the company kind of fell out of love with the notion of putting celebrities into attractions. So right. as a direct result, we lost a version of the country bears that was supposed to, you know, they were going to recast all of the voices with country stars of the 1990s, you know, the Garth oh. Brooks and Reba McIntyre's of that world. And then there was also a, a version of the Enchanted Tiki Room where you were going to get Ted Danson, Woody Harrelson, and Carla Perlman, Danny DeVito from Taxi, and, and Bette Midler again, uh, who was going to, and you'll love this. Remember how whenever you, you see the, the Tiki Room, you, know, you, you have, is it Pierre who talks about, where is Rosita? It's uh, Miguel. Yeah. Miguel, you actually got to meet Rosita. She was going to be the new star of the show. Oh, funny gag. Yeah, but that fell by the wayside, and, and Disney began to drift back toward okay, let's go more in a, a professional voice situation. So you wound up with things like under new management, where you got the two toucans out front became William and Morris, and they were voiced by Phil Hartman and, and Don Rickles. And yeah. in the show itself, you got Gilbert Godfrey as Iago and a Rowan Atkinson sound-alike as Zazu. Oh, really? Oh, that's right. It is, a, it is a, like, yeah. I mean, the thing with Don Rickles picking him is, mm -hmm. you, you know, he's been around long enough that you know what you're getting. Oh, no, no, that's exactly, you hear that voice and it's like, ooh, that guy. But by this point, Len, the pendulum is really swinging the other way. So if you get celebrities in a Disney attraction, they're more along the lines of what Patrick Warburton does with the pre-show for Soaring. Right. That wonderful sort of hammy, goofy take on explaining the whole safety field. But yeah, Terry Crews at uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, same thing. There we go, there we go. But WDI had learned a hard lesson when it came to celebrities and attractions. And this brings us to Gary Sinise. One of my fa all-time favorite theme park stories. So he's the, the original host of Mission Space, the, the pre-show there, and he signs the deal, and everybody's happy, and he shows up on the day of the shoot, and they're like, Allegedly, allegedly, this is all allegedly. Alleged. Well, no, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> allegedly. Hmm. is there something you want to tell us, Gary? It's like, nope, nope, not at all. You know, and so they shoot it, they shoot the footage, and they're just something ain't right. Yeah, they're, they're doing the playbacks, and everyone's eyes start to water involuntarily. <laughs> all right, so, so now, Len, we, we jump ahead to August of 2017 when the new green version of Mission Space debuts, the, the circle around the world thing. Mm -hmm. And Gina Torres has been signed to fill the Gary Sinise role for, for this new pre-show that's going to be shot for this version of Mission Space. And evidently there was this very quiet back-channel conversation. Hey, funny story. <laughs> you know, that's infectious. We love the Gina just the way she is. Her forehead's so expressive at conveying nuance that's and emotion. Right. 
There we go. All right. Loved her in Firefly. God, the, she could say things without speaking a word using just her eyebrows. There we go. That keeps us just on the right side of legal. You know, so allegedly. Say, allegedly. Probably none of this happened. There we go. There we go. But, but anyway, that's the big overview of, of Disney's and celebrities and attractions. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I think my you mentioned all of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. Martin Short doing the mm-hmm. stuff at Epcot. I also love Martin Short because he came back and did not the current version, but the next most recent version of the Okinada film. Right. Oh, that has my favorite stage direction of all time. You know, he, what he ends the show, it's like, if you like what you saw here, <laughs> you can visit anytime. Just what? Just go out to the parking lot at Spaceship Earth and hang a right. Yeah, hang a right. That, Head north. <laughs> tell, him Mar- tell him Marty sent you. <laughs> oh, no. Great fun. Great fun. So. I also liked, you mentioned Robin Williams, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the and the Magic of Disney Animation, which I loved. Um, mm-hmm. Also, if you've ever listened, to the stuff he ad libs at the end of Timekeeper, I oh. swear to God, I would believe anyone who said he didn't have a script, and he just he he ad libbed the entire thing. Evidently, that is what we got in Timekeeper was the rehearsal. That uh, <laughs> supposedly he came in, he rehearsed, and then this was when Robin had the falling out with Disney. Oh and it, yeah over you know aladdin related issues and it was like you know well i'm gonna take the hell with it i'm not coming back and it's like they were able to pull that attraction out of the rehearsal which i just I, i'm amazed by wow that's that's fantastic and i totally believe that because yeah it's not like he's going to come back in for reshoots or retakes no, no, no. there we go all right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We just recorded the first part of a new three-part series uh, and a Bandcamp exclusive at that on how Cars Land came to be. On next week's show, Jim will be back from the D23 event in Anaheim and we'll recap all the theme park news coming out of that. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's getting his cape, monocle, and handlebar mustache ready for the Alaska Day Festive Formal Ball, featuring period dress and period music performed by the U.S. Army Band on Saturday, October 15th, 2022, at the Harrigan Centennial Hall on Historic Harbor Drive in beautiful downtown Sitka, Alaska. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.